Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. The man says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. He acknowledges that his faith is not what it should be, but it doesn't stop Jesus from helping him. And so I want you to know this today, that the Lord will meet you where you're at. But then through that, he wants to strengthen your faith. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the Gospel of John. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on John chapter 4, verses 43 through 54 in a message titled, The Second Sign. Now, here's Pastor Brian. So as we have mentioned, John, the writer, John wrote his gospel last. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, their gospels had already been written. And their accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus are, at least upon initial readings, they are similar. They are similar. They cover a lot of the same ground. The more you read them, you realize that, oh, they're different than they initially appear to be. But, but in a sense, they, they follow Jesus through pretty much the same things. They're called the synoptics, meaning seen from a similar point of view. So John, he writes, and his gospel is so much different. It is unique um, in that he doesn't really follow the pattern that Matthew, Mark, and Luke followed. But John decides that he's going to give a bit of a different presentation. And so John centers his gospel around seven signs and seven sayings. And so everything in John's gospel revolves around these signs and these sayings. And when we look at the gospel of John, we see that there are very unique features to it. But John tells us why he did that. He did it with this objective. He wrote so that people would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, they might have life in his name. So that that was his reason. So John says, I want to write out the life of Jesus, and I want to write it in a way that's going to it's going to bring people to the conclusion that Jesus really is the Messiah, that he really is God the Son, and that they can believe and have life in his name. So that's what he does here in this gospel. Now, in the text that we just read, we read right at the very end, it says, this was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. So this is the second sign. So as I said, John is going to write this gospel around these signs. And he uses the word sign rather than the word miracle, even though most of the signs are 
miracles. But John uses the word sign for a reason because he, he's using these things and he wants us to see that these things point to what he is wanting us to conclude, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so we could think when he uses the word sign, just think signpost. So these are signposts, just as a signpost points you in a direction, tells you what's up ahead. That's what John is doing as he is writing his gospel and as he is focusing in on these signs. Now, the first sign, which occurred in the second chapter, the turning of water into wine, it pointed to Jesus indeed being the creator. That was, that was the sign behind uh, what Jesus did. Now, John in the prologue, the prologue being the beginning of his gospel, maybe you remember he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then he says, and all things were made by him. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. And then he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the turning of the water into wine was a manifestation of what John had already said, that Jesus is the creator. Turning the water into wine was a creative event. And that's what that first sign was pointing to, that Jesus is the one who created all things. John wants his readers to understand that. Now, here in the second sign, he is wanting us to see something else. And we'll get to that something else that he wants us to see in just a moment. But before we do that, there are two slightly perplexing things that John says in the first part of the verses that we read that I want us to just look at for a moment. So let me go back and read here. Verse 43 says, after two days, he left for Galilee. Now, Jesus, you remember, he had been in Samaria. He was in Judea and he needed, it says, he was heading back to Galilee, but it says he needed to go through Samaria. Why did he need to go through Samaria? Because there was that woman that needed to hear the gospel, that woman at the well. And you remember that story, you heard it a few weeks ago. And then as a result of Jesus revealing to her that he is the Messiah, she goes and tells the people in her village and Jesus stays with them for two days and preaches the gospel to him. And at the end they say, to her, they say, now we don't believe in him because of what you said only. We believe in him because we heard him ourselves and we know that he is the savior of the world. So now after those two days, Jesus now continues the journey to Galilee. But now John says this in verse 44, he says, now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they had also been there. So this is where it gets a little perplexing. So John reminds us of something that Jesus said. Okay, Jesus is going back to Galilee. He had said a prophet is, is not without honor except in his own country. 
And then it says, and Jesus went there and the Galileans welcomed him. So it seems a little bit contradictory. Like, wait, I thought, I thought there was no honor for the prophet in his own country, but uh, it says that the Galileans welcomed him. And then that's one. The second thing that is somewhat perplexing is when this man comes to him, and again, let's pick up reading. It says, and there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. So the second perplexing thing is Jesus sort of rebukes not just the man, but it's obvious that there are more people there. He rebukes them for their faith that is merely a faith for what they can get out of it. They want to see a sign. They want to see a wonder. And Jesus, he rebukes that. But then he does exactly what the man asked. He healed the man's son. So what is this all about? <laughs> so a prophet is not without honor except in his own country. But then Jesus goes to that place. He rebukes the people for the lack of faith, saying that they wouldn't believe unless they saw signs and wonders, and he performs signs and wonders. I think, I think there's something happening here, and this is what I believe it is. Number one is that where and when God works is not determined by majority consensus. So because the general attitude in Galilee was one of unbelief toward Jesus, the assumption would be, well, he wouldn't go there because he already said a prophet is not without honor except in his own country. So why go there? Well, because there were some that would believe. And Jesus went to those who would believe, even though the general consensus was negative, even though most people were resistant, that didn't prevent Jesus from working. And I bring this up because I think it's important for us to recognize that even though we might look at certain places or look at certain people groups or something like that, and we might see an opposition or a hostility there, maybe in a culture toward the gospel, and then assume that God wouldn't do a work there because of that, we could very well be wrong. Because God works not by majority consensus, but he works where any heart is open. And, and I think of Paul the Apostle and we, we saw the, the Bema seat there, Corinth. You know, Corinth was one of those places, if Paul would have told you in advance, hey, I'm gonna go to Corinth because I just feel like the Lord is leading and, and God wants to do a work there. 
you know, anybody who knew Corinth in the day would have said, oh no, Paul, there's no way. There, that, there's no way God's gonna work in Corinth. I mean, that place is just, it's so far gone. It, it's just beyond repair. That's what the consensus would have been. Just like certain places today or certain groups of people today. Oh, God, God's, God's not gonna work. Don't expect God to work there. But what happened with Corinth? The Lord, when, when Paul is about to go there, on his way there, he experiences some pretty intense opposition in Thessalonica and then in uh, Berea and, and Philippi before that. But, but then he comes to Corinth and he's, he's fearful. And Jesus appears to him one night and he says this. He says, Paul, don't be afraid. Nobody is gonna attack you in this city. And then he says this. He says, I have many people in this city. Don't be afraid, Paul. Stay here. Preach the gospel. I have many people in this city. Who would have thought that there were many people that had yet to meet Jesus but would meet him in the city of Corinth? It just didn't seem like it. It seemed like that place was in stiff opposition to the God of heaven and earth, to the biblical God. But God knew that there were hearts there. And so I think that that is what's happening here. Even though the general consensus in Galilee is they're not interested, but yet some welcomed him and Jesus went for them. And then secondly, when we see how there's this rebuke that Jesus gives because of their wrong-headed thinking about faith, but yet he nevertheless does what the man asked him. And I think what we learn from this is that Jesus meets and helps people where they are, even when their spiritual state is not what it should be. Do you know that that's true? Jesus meets and helps people where they are, even when they aren't where they should be. Sometimes we get in our minds that, well, God's never going to help that person because we know certain things about them. Or we might even say, I, I don't think God will help me because, you know, these parts of my life are really not what they ought to be. Well, this isn't to encourage you to remain in a state where your life isn't where it should be, but it's to encourage you to know that even then, God still will work. He meets us where we're at. He doesn't put the prerequisite on us. Well, you know, you cry out to God, hey, I'll help you when you get your, your act together. He doesn't do that. He meets us where we are. I think of that wonderful story that's told in one of the other gospels or two, where the man comes to Jesus and his, his son is demonized and he's wanting to see his son delivered. And he comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, if you can help, please deliver my son. And Jesus says, if you can believe, all things are possible to those who believe. And the man says this, the man says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. He acknowledges that his faith is not 
what it should be. But it doesn't stop Jesus from helping him. And so I want you to know this today, that the Lord will meet you where you're at. He'll meet you right where you're at. And if you're at a place of weak faith, he's not going to pass you by because of your weakness of faith. He'll meet you where you're at. But then through that, he wants to strengthen your faith. And so these are two of the things that I think we can take away from what we read here in these, these somewhat perplexing verses. Now, moving on from that, let's look at the sign. Because we're told here that this is the second sign that Jesus performed. This is the second sign. What is the sign? Well, remember, a sign is, is pointing to something else. What is this pointing to? What did Jesus do here? He did not simply heal this man's son because he'd done that kind of thing already. And that kind of thing was fairly common. And no one else, I mean, although it was obviously a miracle and although it would have been one of the things that would have pointed to, to Jesus as, as the Messiah, yet this one sign specifically, John sees as special. Why is it special? Well, it's special because of this, that Jesus did not do what the man asked him to do in one sense. Because what did the man say? He said, come down to my, where my son is. Now, Jesus is in Cana of Galilee. This man comes to Cana. His son is in Capernaum. Come down to where my son is. So the man evidently is thinking Jesus needs to go and he needs to lay hands on my son. He needs to say a prayer over my son. He needs to be there present to do something. But you see, Jesus did not need to be present. Jesus simply spoke a word. And so we see here, the man said, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus says, go your son will live. So the sign is that he spoke and the man's son was healed the very moment Jesus said it was so. And what John wants us to understand is that Jesus is doing here something that no one but God can do. That's what, he's, that's what he wants us to see. You see, as you follow the life of Jesus through the gospels, it just becomes clear that this Jesus is not a mere man. That this Jesus is, is not even a superman. This Jesus is the God-man. He's God. He does things only God can do. Now, if the Jewish person understood anything about God, it was that his word was all-powerful. The Jews understood that. They, of course, had the scriptures. And those scriptures stated that over and over and over again. Eight times in the creation account of Genesis chapter one, it says, and God said, and it was so. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let the light and the darkness be separated, and it was separated. God said, let the waters 
and the land be separated from one another. God, in the beginning, created the heaven and the earth. So the Jews would understand that God alone had the power to speak things into existence. That was what they were taught in their scripture. Psalm 148, a psalm that they would have sung as they gathered. Psalm 148, it's a call out to all of creation, sun, moon, stars, seas, sea creatures, animals, just all of the different things that God has created. And the call is, let them praise the name of the Lord for he commanded and they were created. He commanded and they were created. God spoke everything into existence. The Hebrew word bara, in, so Genesis chapter one, verse one, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The, the Hebrew word for created is bara. And it means to create from nothing. See, God creates from nothing. If you go back and you read some of the ancient cosmologies, the stories the Babylonians told and the different ancient people groups told about how the world came to being. It was all based on the battle of the gods and all these crazy mythological ideas and so forth. The Bible itself is not even remotely like that. It's a straightforward account. God spoke heaven and earth into existence. Psalm 107 says this, he sent his word and healed them. And that is exactly what is happening here. Jesus is just speaking a word. Jesus is in Cana, which is about 20 miles sort of west of Capernaum. And there in Capernaum, as Jesus says that word, the boy is immediately healed. And when the man ends up heading home, his servants come to meet him and they say, it's okay. It's good. Your, your son's fine. And he said, when did he get better? And they told him the time and he realized it was the exact moment that Jesus said, your son will live. So again, this is the sign. The sign is God has visited his people. He's visited his people. God is God is among us. Remember the prophecy that says the virgin will bring forth the son and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's a prophecy about Jesus. Some people say, well, how come we call him Jesus and not Emmanuel? Emmanuel will be what he's called in the future when he comes back and reigns. But the point is, the sign is telling us that God is with us. And so this man, it says now that he and his household believed. So up until this point, his faith was like the faith of so many. It was not a deep faith in Jesus for who he was, but it was more a faith in him for what he might do for me. Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled, 
Basic Christianity by John Stott. In our increasingly global culture, issues of social justice are frequently headlined in all the major news outlets. But one universal topic is just as frequently avoided, the universal ramifications of the unpopular subject, sin. Sin has enslaved all humanity, and the imagery of slavery appropriately captures the effects that sin has upon all of us. It destroys relationships, families, societies, and nations. Sin affects every social structure within our global culture, and the Bible only gives one hope for the abolition of the consequences of sin. And John Stott presents this hope clearly in this month's resource. If you have recognized the consequences of sin in your own life and are longing for freedom from both its grasp and its consequences, or if you know somebody who has, you need to get this month's resource from Back to Basics. The book Basic Christianity by John Stott is our gift to say thank you for your donation to Back to Basics. So we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the Gospel of John. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.